I once did an interview on CBC Ottawa as a representative of a local charity that helps youth escape homelessness. And I was asked, as people who work in this space often are, whether it was a good idea to give money to people panhandling in the area. Now, my response created a little controversy, and, and it was this, basically. I'm paraphrasing. But that's the wrong question to be asking, right? Giving money isn't a good idea. It's not a bad idea. It's a choice. And it isn't a good choice or a bad one. It's a personal choice. Of course, the follow-up question was, what if they use it to buy alcohol or drugs? To which the answer very much is, so what if they do? Right? Your toonie is not going to be the deciding factor in whether that person uses drugs that day. And more to the point, your decision not to part with your toonie is not going to result in that person failing to secure the necessary funds and spend a day without using and then embarking on a life of sobriety. If such things are your concern, then perhaps take that money and donate it to a local organization, using evidence-based practices to assist people struggling with addiction. Otherwise, what someone does with money you give them is not your concern, and imagining that it is might be a little self-important and paternalistic. Now, rest assured, if you do decide to give a little pocket change to a panhandler, they will use that money to purchase what they need most. That might be socks, it might be a sandwich, and yes, it might be booze. Life on the street is very hard, and the longer people are there, the more likely they are to turn to substance use as a coping mechanism. That's one of the reasons that getting people out of that situation as soon as they find themselves without a home is likely the most efficient and sensible thing we, as a society, can do. And that early intervention idea is what we're going to talk about in today's episode. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and it is time that I step off my soapbox for this episode of our podcast, Mindful. There's been a lot of speculation over the years among economists, psychologists, sociologists, and others about a guaranteed basic income. If we gave every person in Canada a certain amount of money every year, could we solve some of the issues that plague our society? Would it reduce poverty, homelessness, mental health issues? Would the benefits of such a program outweigh the costs? And by that I mean, would it actually be cheaper for us to do this than it would to deal with the problems caused by poverty on the back end? There have been a few studies started in this vein. Manitoba started one in the 70s, Ontario just a few years ago. Both those studies ended up incomplete as a new government was elected in those provinces and they shut the study down before significant data could be obtained and studied. Now my guests today have just completed a big study that may represent one small step in this direction. I'm Jiaying Zhao, but you can call me Jay-Z. Um, that's my preferred name. <laughs> um, I'm a, a professor of psychology and sustainability at the University of British Columbia. I'm Amber Dice. It's spelled D-Y-C-E, and I'm the CEO of the Foundations for Social Change. Wonderful. And I had to speak with you guys. I'm really happy that uh, you were able to make this such a quick turnaround because I read the study uh, that Dr. Zhao, you you published, Jay-Z, if you will. I, I'm gonna, it's going to be odd for me uh, using that. I very much associate uh, Jay-Z with uh, half the music on my playlist. But this is cooler. <laughs> yeah, it is cooler. <laughs> I, I like that very much. But I... You have come up with this study, come out with this study, and the title of it is Unconditional Cash Transfers Reduce Homelessness. And you've shown that people who receive cash 
tend to end up less homeless than those who don't, which I think a lot of us uh, intuitively knew already or has seen in other studies, but this really is a major one in that capacity. So I'm hoping you can just tell me a little bit about the genesis of this. Uh, when reading it, I saw that you were mentioning a lot of the myths that people have around homelessness and the uh, sort of public sentiment that says people who are experiencing homelessness must be bad with money. They must have drug and alcohol problems, all of this sort of thing. Uh, was that the public sentiment that led you to this study so that you could either debunk that or confirm that uh, in some way? I should start by saying that I worked with FSC very closely in the last seven years to conduct this study. FSC is a key implementation partner on the ground to run the, the, the project. So it started with just us having a question. So that was uh, um, back in 2016 when Claire Williams, who was then the ED of FSC, came to me and asked, can we try cash transfers? I jumped on board immediately because nobody has ever done this before. Right. Um, so we, you know, fundraised and got ethics approval, did a lot of preparation and finally start collecting data in 2018, where we gave a one-time cash transfer of $7,500 to each of the 50 individuals in homelessness, while having another group of 65 individuals in homelessness as a control group, so that they did not get the cash. And we followed all of these people for one year to see the impact of this cash transfer. So what we found was this one-time cash transfer reduced homelessness by 99 days. So it basically moved people out of the street into stable housing faster than the control group that did not have the cash transfer. So this is a pretty significant finding because we did not expect that at the outset. You know, Vancouver was, is still expensive, was very expensive, and still very expensive at this point. Uh, the rent was high, the vacancy rate was low. So we actually didn't think that this this $7,500 would actually get help them get into housing, but they did. In fact, a lot of cash recipients moved into stable housing within one month of getting the cash transfer. Whereas if you're, if you're experiencing homelessness in a shelter, you have to wait on average six months to get into housing. Right. So it kind of sped up, you know, the, the, the progression for people in, in, in homelessness. So that's a major finding. We also found, you know, other pretty interesting results on spending. People increased spending on rent, clothing, food, transit. And um, actually, clothing was marginal, so it wasn't statistically significant, but mostly on rent, food, transit, and durable goods. So these are furniture, cars, for instance. They did not increase spending on alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes as most people would predict or assume. And this 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 finding was enormous because it, it really challenges our pre you know assumption of people in homelessness when they're given cash. You know, I think the automatic assumption is that they're gonna spend it on alcohol and drugs. And our studies show that's that wasn't the case. I would say that even the group that you chose to study sort of debunks a lot of the assumptions people have about homelessness in the first place, uh, in that a lot of them aren't living on the street. They're couch surfing. They're sort of the hidden homeless that we talk about a lot. And also, I saw that the group, 30% of them or so were employed. More than 50% were with a partner or married. They were not single people living alone. They had a family or a 
other people to take care of, which mm-hmm. I think also sort of indicates that's not that's not what a lot of people think of when they think of people experiencing homelessness. That's right. That's right. So our participants had to pass a screening survey to to be in a study. And they actually are not the typical homeless person we have in our mind. So these participants have to be homeless for less than two years, Canadian citizen PR at age 19 to 65. And also they must have non-severe levels of substance use, alcohol use, and psychiatric symptoms. So they are kind of like the higher functioning subset of the entire population. But as you pointed out, they are actually pervasive in, in, in Vancouver and other cities because they're not visible to the public. They're in shelters, they are in their cars, they, you know, couch surf. Uh, we don't see them. So we actually, so that's why the public don't include them in the homeless group in their mind, which I think is incorrect. Right. And I think this goes some way toward debunking that notion of what we have in our minds of somebody experiencing homelessness. Amber, how did this work uh, with your organization? Sort of the the nuts and bolts of it. Were you the people who distributed the money? And then how did you track that? How did that work? I am new to the organization. So I've just been the CEO for the last three months. In the pilot program, Foundations for Social Change did collect the fundings. A large majority was government funding. The government provided 500000 to get the pilot off the ground. But yes, uh, Foundations for Social Change collected the funding. And then we also employed the interviewers who, who went out and made the connections with the individuals that received the cash transfers and that were in the control group as well. So the foundation staff and Jay-Z and her team worked really closely together to collect the information and distill it down to what we see now in the paper. And it was, I think there was a lot of really surprising results from the ground, not only in the information that was gathered statistically, but there was a lot of information found, like you said earlier, about the hidden homeless that the predictions of there being about 300, sorry, 3,600 homeless in Vancouver in the metro Vancouver area was absolutely off the mark, that there are a number of people living in Vancouver Airport on subways, uh, on buses, on friends' couches. And a lot of the other, one of the big findings was that the majority of the individuals we were working with wouldn't have considered themselves unhomed. They wouldn't have considered themselves homeless. They really don't enjoy that term. So the Foundation for Social Change really was a big part in this study. And I think we learned a lot from that and have grown since that particular project. So so the the count of or the guesstimate, I guess, of 306,000 homeless in Vancouver, was that an undercount or an overcount with, I, I know that a lot of the time, the way that this is determined are point in time studies where people go out into the streets and a bunch of organizations just count people, but really you're missing all of the hidden people. So is the number a lot larger then? So the number that was presented by the city of Vancouver is significantly lower in our estimate because it only included people living in their vehicles and living on the street if they could find those people. So it was a bunch of volunteers who went out and just did headcounts more or less. And it, like you said, it did, it's significantly higher or the number that they found is significantly lower. And we're finding that the population is, that's only about 20% 
of the people that we're interacting with. So there just needs to be a different structure in how we try and formulate a count around that because a lot of the funding and a lot of the resources are based on those numbers that are presented by the city. And so meaning that the systems aren't in place to really support everyone who needs it. And now, Jay-Z, you in your study are in writing it up, you talk about the cost savings basically to the taxpayer, right? You've given people $7,500, but it comes back at $8,277 worth of savings. So overall, we, the taxpayer, have saved $777. It looks like you're talking about simply strictly in the shelter system there. Does that take into account other things like uh, medical uh, situations and that sort of thing that we always, that we often talk Talk about as costs associated with homelessness. So that number doesn't include healthcare and police encounters and you know other social and health services. We have done another analysis. We've done several cost benefit analyses. When we include all services we tracked over time, that includes time in shelter, time in the hospital, time in jail, etc. That cost savings was very similar to the shelter savings, but they're not that different from the shelter number. That almost seems to me like the headline of this story uh, is that simply giving people experiencing homelessness money saves us money in the long run. And it's a good idea to go ahead and do it. And I think a lot of that sort of dovetails with the housing first policy that we now have at a federal level, the notion that you get somebody into housing first, then that's a a stable environment. And from there, they can deal with all kinds of other things and issues, finding a job, dealing with mental health issues, dealing with addiction issues, that sort of thing. But the housing has to come first. The problem, like in Vancouver seems to be the, a lack of housing. There's not a lot of vacancy and the housing that is available and Ottawa has the same problem is extremely expensive. So one way to get people into that housing appears to just be giving them money. Uh, would you say that is the headline of this study? Did you choose it for that reason or uh, I'm sorry, this is a lot of questions all at once. <laughs> but uh, was that more of a focus uh, as, when the results came out because it was surprising rather than the you know psychological benefits of having enough disposable income to uh, live fairly well for you know 99 less days in a shelter kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, $7,500 in Vancouver is really not that much. Right. Um, a lot of our participants spent that money by six months. So that I think that's partly why we don't see cognitive or well-being improvements substantially. I mean, I have to say that the average income of our participants is only $12,000 per person per year. So when they get the cash transfer, they're still below the poverty line. So they're still very much in poverty and they need a lot more to, to cope with the high living costs in Vancouver. So I, I just, I think my take on that is the $7,500 is not enough. Is right. far from sufficient. And I think we need to give them a bigger chunk to actually bring up the well-being and cognitive function metrics or the psychological uh, improvements. But we were very surprised, as you said, to see that housing improved and spendings, even savings improved overall. So those are kind of the main findings. We, we tracked other stuff like employment education. Again, I think these outcomes may not happen immediately, um, we only tracked these participants for one year. Um, I think 
once you have a roof over your head, you know, that's when you can think about jobs and education and training. So I think that these are the kind of next steps if you can stay housed. So I think these are kind of, these are my reasons as to why we're surprised and you know, why we didn't find the things we were expected to find. I'm wondering if one of the reasons that this worked so well in terms of uh, people being able to spend money on housing, on shelter, on food, on the necessities of life, is that it was delivered all in one chunk right up front rather than spread out on a week-to-week, month-to-month sort of basis. You know, we uh, a lot of the time we talk about poverty in the sense that, right, it takes money to make money. It is very expensive to be poor. You go to a grocery store and you only have $30 to spend. Well, you're going to get, you know, you're not going to get very much for that. But if you have $60 to spend, you can make that last twice as long because you can buy things a little larger and spend a little less on them. Uh, is that something that you found that giving it all in one chunk made a difference? So we we didn't have the the smaller payments, but more frequent, right? So like a monthly payment of you know, some much smaller amount. Well, because we want to give them maximum freedom to do whatever they want, right? So I think that's why we went with a lump sum as opposed to smaller regular payments. Our participants are, are already receiving income assistance. So they are getting the monthly payments from the governments, but that doesn't really help them get into stable housing. So I think that cash transfer, that lump sum transfer really helped. And I would just add from a non-statistical standpoint, like from the actual humanized portion of getting to know the participants, that the other feedback was that getting that lump sum provided the security in their minds to whether it was pay off a credit card debt and then to allow themselves to get ahead of that constant interest or to have a bit of money in the bank for a rainy day to allow themselves to put a deposit down on housing. Like it really created that one lump sum. Although we did hear regularly that it just would have been more impactful had it been a higher number, but that from a, from a more social view that it gave them the opportunity, gave a number of the participants the opportunity to really feel safe to move forward as opposed to constantly living from month to month on those checks. So that was something that the organization that foundations for social change was new for us to hear and was really impactful in how we set up and how we advocate for programming moving forward. I I imagine it is. And I mean, obviously you probably can't uh, make giving people large sums of money part of your programming, uh, right? Uh, You need to be able to gather that sum of money in the first place. That's something I'm very curious about too. How did you get $375,000 to distribute at the beginning of this study? Uh, Who was generous enough to make that happen? Yeah, like I said, there was the the government grant at the beginning, it was 500,000. And then there were a number of really dedicated individuals who could could feel that there was change, there was possible change with this research project in conjunction with UBC and Jay-Z's team. So I think it, we're, and we're still finding the same, that it's the needle in the haystack, finding those individuals who really want to support our community in a different way and see systems change. And the only way we can do that is to really put data in place to show that this is a beneficial move forward. And Jay-Z was actually a part of the, the funding piece, so I'll let her 
speak more to the... Yeah, so it was a, a, a grant application that Claire Williams and I put to um, ESDC. So um, I forgot the acronym. I forget every acronym. Economic and Social name. Development Canada. Yes, there we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. It was their um, part of their homelessness reduction strategy calls. And we got, as I remember, said, uh, almost half a million dollars from the government. So that kickstarted the, the design of the, the, the whole project. Then Claire and I fundraised the rest of the, the, I mean, we also need money to pay for staff and students fundraise the rest of it through private donations uh, from individuals and, and foundations. I think I've seen you talk a fair amount about guaranteed basic income and this idea that if we were to do this on a regular basis, that pretty well every study shows that it would be beneficial and would save people in the long run. And I think we have data, right? For every $10 that we spend giving money to homeless people, we as taxpayers save like $23 in the end, uh, right? It's, it's always been the best plan and the most cost of a uh, cost effective plan but trying to translate that for public consumption right trying to convince the public that that's the case is the next step here so you know it if you had a political party that was all in on this that really made that a centerpiece of their platform where would you start in convincing somebody who really does still picture homeless people as only the ones that they see on the street? You know, would you try to do a little bit more of an educational piece saying, hey, you know, homelessness is a much larger thing than just what you see here. And there's a lot of this. Right. And the more money we can provide, the earlier the less likely people are to be long term homeless and so on. And here are the benefits. Or do you start with the cost saving and and that headline from this study that there's a lot of money to be saved by, you know, nipping it in the bud, if you will, as soon as somebody finds himself in that situation, give them a bunch of money and they'll be able to get out of it. We need to change the public narrative on homelessness, first of all. Like that's that needs to be addressed. There are different ways to address this. So, so we, we tested messaging strategies in, in our paper as well, like mentioning the, the cost savings. So that, that seemed to move people more, by that I mean improve their public support uh, for the policy. Another one is another messaging strategy was just to counteract that stereotype we have in our mind. Um, you know, people with the cash transfer actually spend it on rent, food, transit, durable goods, and there was no increased spending on alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes. So I think that would help changing the, the public narrative. In terms of you know policy change and implementing this as a kind of guaranteed income policy, I think I'm definitely in favor of the change, but we have to think about, so what we haven't shown is what does the cash do to people who screen out in our study? Right. Those people who who are homeless for longer, who have severe levels of substance use, alcohol use, and psychiatric symptoms. That we don't know yet, because there's no data. Right. Um, so I think we have to be careful around that when we implement something like a guaranteed basic income. And I think we're, you know, we're currently replicating our study. So we'll find out if these results hold now, as opposed to, you know, the study was actually done um, from 2018 to 2020. So that was a long, a while ago. So we want to see if the, the findings still hold. 
these days. And in addition, we would like to expand to other populations like the precariously housed, the people who are about to become homeless. I think that's another critical you know, group that we have to, that will benefit from a cash transfer. So yeah, so I, th- I think in terms of policy, I'm in favor largely, but it has to be carefully thought out. Right. And what about, and I'm just thinking out loud here, but what about, uh, for example, cash transfers to people who are exiting the foster care system, right? Mm -hmm. That being one of the biggest predictors of future homelessness that there is. If people age out of the foster care system and now they're on their own, significant cash transfer at that point might make a big difference, right? We have that. We have the part these youth aging out of care in our pilot study or in the uh, initial study and, and also in the current study as well. So that's, that's a very uh, important uh, group to include. Sorry, I was going to say that that Foundation for Social Change is right now really working towards what our next project is while we're working with Jay-Z because we're doing an expansion project currently that's underway and, and doing quite well. And that keeps coming up the youth aging out of foster care, uh, people coming out of the prison system. There's a number of populations that we just don't have information and statistical data around what a cash transfer would do to better their lives. And so that's, we're in the in the works of really trying to figure out what's the most impactful information we can gather to help kind of back some of this information that Jay-Z and her team have developed over the last few years. Amber, you're saying you don't have the data, which certainly is the case, but uh, Jay-Z, I saw you talking about how, and you know, a, a study of a guaranteed basic income, which I'm just going to call GBI from now on, because I don't think we have enough acronyms, but Canada would be a great place for that study because we've done it twice before. And you cited Manitoba and you cited Ontario. The one thing I'd say there, though, is that, yeah, we've started it twice, but we've never finished that study, right? Both of those studies, Manitoba in the 70s, Ontario more, more recently, a new government comes into power and they just cancel the study that was ongoing I think, and this is maybe me being biased, but I think it's because they're afraid it might work. And they're afraid to to actually have the results come out. It would be quite easy to let the study continue going, but we haven't yet done that. How can we do that if we decided to? I think I'll just speak first and then Jay-Z's the expert, but I think it's public perception. So changing the public perception from our standpoint, those were changed when government bodies changed over because it was an easy thing to focus on and say, oh, we're going to cut this because the public don't want it. And it's not successful in all those things. So I think, as Jay-Z said before, one of the first things to do from a community standpoint, but also from a government standpoint, is to change public perception around what being unhoused is and that there are the population is 80%, 20% of what we see and what we think homelessness is as opposed to the 80% that we that we don't that are employed that are educated or that are fighting to get educated and you know i think changing that perception will be key for any government moving forward to be successful with any kind of program like UBI or GBI. And I'm curious why you've chosen this particular group to study uh, who 
one might say are the less vulnerable, right? I, I know that when Housing First uh, implements their program, generally speaking, the people who receive the housing are those who are most at risk, who are most vulnerable. So the people who have serious mental health issues, serious addiction issues, who generally do live on the street, who are the stereotypical homeless people that a lot have in their mind, those are the ones who get the housing first in the Housing First program because they're the ones who could benefit the most from it. And so would you say then, like, would a follow-up study be with that population? Why? What made you choose the sort of newly unhoused population to, to do this one? One practical reason is the UBC Ethics Board wouldn't let us recruit kind of people who are more entrenched or have severe levels of substance use. They wouldn't even let us run the study with homeless people in the first place. They said, why don't you just look at people who are housed but low income? Uh, so we had to, we actually took us six months to get approval from UBC uh, Ethics Board to run this study. So I think that's kind of, you know, risk mitigation, number one. And two is there's just overwhelming public perception that this is too risky to do, don't do it. So we chose this higher functioning subset to start and see whether cash will benefit them first. Obviously, I think someone or I don't know if I see or some group needs to try the cash also with the uh, uh, the people who screened out from our study. My gut response is that maybe I think that for that population, we they it's probably better better to provide cash plus supports. So cash with mental health services with you know detox services for instance i think that's probably the best combo and cash itself i i don't know what the impact would be on these people and to add to that we've now not in regards to how we decided to do the project but now kind of backing it up as we're working with a number of senators and mayors uh to really understand how to advocate using this information and what we're hearing is that one this group of people we're studying, we are able to help them with the cash transfers. The evidence is there that there there is a substantial social and financial benefit to really focusing on this group. And that the group that you were just mentioning, there are a number of supports, like you said, that are already in place and there aren't any supports really, there isn't focus on this group. And so being able to collect the data and really be able to show as we advocate and move forward that it is beneficial speaking to this group specifically to provide these cash transfers, however, that structure moving forward is really something that we, you know, we as a society should focus on. And I'm wondering too, if maybe the way that social supports are divvied out now here in Ontario, it's Ontario Works that helps people in a variety of different ways, disability payments and so on. But generally speaking, that happens monthly. And it seems like there's a significant group of people who would do much better were that to be cash transfer payment up front at the beginning of the year. And maybe there's a way to screen for the people who would most benefit from that in order to give them the biggest leg up you could with the amount of money that they're getting. Yeah, that's a great that's a suggestion. I mean, I think you did the Ontario trial and the Manitoba trial actually were positive. While, the you know, from the limited data that they collected, I think from the reports I've seen, the benefit, they're actually quite a lot of benefits 
despite early termination. A similar trial happened in Finland that was also canceled by the government. I think these trials were canceled mostly because of public resistance and the lack of political support. Um, that's the narrative piece. So, I mean, the longest running and still currently running BI trial in the world is, is in Alaska. It's the Alaska right. Permanent Fund. It's still running. It's been running for decades now. And, you know, we're seeing still positive, very positive results in a, a wide range of domains. Yeah, I, I saw the uh, I saw the uh, there was a poll in Alaska where uh, it was essentially, uh, you know, how do you feel about this uh, transfer payment that you receive? Uh, and every resident of Alaska receives it every year. And uh, doing away with that was the most unpopular possible policy position that they could have. Right. Because obviously people have become, you know, become uh, accustomed to it. They count on it and it has improved their lives. And only, yes, over a length of time, does that become the case? It's like here in Canada where there's a lot of uh, polls is, you know, let's cancel universal health care and uh, do away with that. It's extremely unpopular to have that notion. Whereas countries that have yet to adopt universal health care, there's a lot more backlash against it and a lot more uh, distrust of that process. So it's all it almost feels like something that you have to implement in order to then have uh, people embrace, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some government, I hope the Canadian government will just suck up and do it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, too. And you mentioned that the 70s trial. I've tried very hard to get as much data as I can about that trial. I, I was very interested in about, about it even before the Ontario one started a few years ago. And it strikes me that there is some data. A lot of it was sort of social improvements that people experienced. Uh, they did more artistic things. They got into better jobs. They got, you know, their mental health was improved. Their dental health was improved, that sort of thing. There were a few data points along there. But the bulk of that data is still buried somewhere and inaccessible. So even the uh, last few years of that trial, we really don't know exactly how beneficial it was. There's little dribs and drabs that have come out of it uh, where we've learned a few things, but not nearly enough to make a determination, I think. So I've got just over two minutes left here. Going forward, let's start with you, Amber. Going forward, how would you like to see this study and the results implemented, you know, as people get to know a little bit more about what's going on? Yeah, great question. Thank you. I I think like Jay-Z said, we need a bit more information around how a cash transfer or a GBI could be beneficial or have negative effects on the populations that we haven't studied. But I think the what I'd like to see in regards to implementation is for us to for all of Canada to, to receive it, those who would qualify, but I think starting in other areas across the country, having government funded, not privately funded, because that creates unnecessary weight on organizations that are trying to change policy. But I think having pilot projects across the country, although those take a long time, you know, proof is in the pudding. Yeah, I'd just say raise the income floor and income security. Right. For marginalized populations. So that's that's my recommendation. 
Well, I certainly hope we do that. And I thank you for doing this study of both of you. Thank you for appearing on the program with me today. I appreciate your time. Uh, it was great to get to know you both a little bit and I appreciate the work you're both doing. Thank, thank you, you thank you so much. A lot to unpack with this study and a lot to consider. To help you consider some of the ramifications of Jay-Z and Amber's work, I've included a few links in the show notes. Thanks to Dr. Zhao and Amber for appearing on Mindful to discuss this study, and to you at home for listening, streaming, downloading, and leaving a review on the platform where you're listening. Mindful is written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.